Let's uh, read God's word, Mark chapter 9. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what? rising from the dead, meant. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as is written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him, Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy came like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. 
After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will, be, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What, are you, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and he stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it will be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And if your hand curses, causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worms does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire salt is good but if the salt should lose its flavor how can you season it have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another Isaac. I'm one of the assistant ministers here at our church. Uh, it's so great to see lots of new faces, lots of people in the room, and I'm sure many people joining us online as well. Uh, I'm really keen to get stuck into <clears throat> this chapter. Uh, there's a lot going on, isn't there? But I'll start with this question. Have you ever seen a glimpse of something 
and gotten a bit confused with the whole product, the, the final product. So what I mean, here's some examples. Uh, my dog at home, when he sees another dog on the TV, he sometimes is convinced that there's a dog in the lounge room. He just starts barking away and he kind of, his ears proc, like prick up and everything. So he sees a glimpse of this dog and he thinks that it's right there with him. Or uh, maybe you watch the trailer for a movie and you're watching away and somehow you get confused and you think that it's the entire movie. Like it's a bit ridiculous, right? See, seeing a glimpse of something and getting confused for the whole product. Maybe you're at Messina and they give you the little kind of taster of the ice cream and you think, yeah, okay, is this the whole deal? It's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? And it's kind of, I think, what the disciples have gotten wrong here. They see this awesome glimpse of Jesus in the transfiguration. <clears throat> He's, you know, dazzling white. And it seems that they're a bit confused. They think that maybe this is the start of the end. The end has come. Jesus doesn't have to suffer anymore. They kind of get confused with this glimpse of Jesus' glory. So that's who we're heading to today. We'll see Jesus' glory before them, how he's unveiled before them. And we'll see how the disciples didn't really get all that much right in this chapter. They got some things, but there's lots to grow there for them. And we'll see how the father of the boy is this great example of humility. How he, he calls to Jesus, he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. So there's some of the themes that we're thinking about today. But as we kick off our first point, we're to listen to Jesus. He's the glorified Son of God. So what does it mean to listen to him? I think it means that we're, we're to be primarily influenced by him rather than any other voice in life. We care what he says about any, compared to anybody else. It means often opening up his word and letting the Bible come in and to, to affect our heart and our soul and our, our mind. <clears throat> and listening, it might be a bit like the crowds, the crowds that were amazed at what Jesus was doing here in chapter 9. And for us, it'll be the same. As we sit and spend time with Jesus, amazed by him, simply glorifying him, praising him in song as we do this morning, I think that's all wrapped up in this idea of listening to him. And listening will also mean actively drowning out other voices that are, are starting to influence us too much. <clears throat> listening, sorry, one sec. <clears throat> uh, listening might mean that we realise that some other voice in our life, a friend or a family member or an internet uh, figure, is just too loud in our minds and our thinking and that we need to go back to Jesus and focus on him instead. Now, as we approach a whole new chapter... I think it's helpful for us to remember where we've been at, like what, what's happened in the last chapter. And you can see there in the last verse, you can uh, flick there with me, the last verse of chapter 8. Jesus, he's just told them something incredible, that he, something that will be difficult for them to understand, that he will be the judge of all, that when he returns, he will judge every person. Now, the disciples, they're still wrestling with Jesus' identity. They, they, they don't even know quite who he is yet. He hasn't died, he hasn't risen back from life, but he's already saying that I'll come back as judge. And I think for a lot of us too, that we can kind of forget the second coming of Jesus, that he will come back to judge. In many of our churches, we, we don't hear about that all that much. I'll let you ponder on the, the return of Jesus for a moment. <laughs> 
I think it's easy to kind of get in our comfortable lives, right, and to forget that he's coming back, and it could be any day. We sort of fool ourselves and think that we, think that we have decades to come. We have decades to build our lives, that one day we'll go to him, but Jesus actually might come to us. I think we need to remember this. I've loved spending a bit more time in the book of Revelation to see this again. Uh, we're heading away for our youth camp in a matter of weeks, on, and I've been doing some prep in this book, which is all about uh, Jesus' return. And it's been such an encouragement to remember that he's coming back, that he's not done with us, and the hope that it gives Christians who trust in him. And that he could come back in any moment, in any instant. As we think of Jesus' return, in 2 Peter we're told that there will be scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And a lot of people in our world kind of think this is about us, don't they? It's been a while, it's been a couple of thousand years, what's going on? And it'd be easy to be embarrassed and think it's been so long, he still hasn't come back yet. And Jesus, he might come back to us any moment. So Jesus, he's just said this in Mark, that he is the judge, he's coming back to judge all. And chapter 9 is a bit like a proof that he can do this, that he is God. It's like this unveiling of who he is, so they can trust that he is going to come back. We get this glimpse of his glory. So what actually happened at the transfiguration? What's going on? Well, they go up to this mountain, and a lot of the times in the Bible you'll know that uh, a lot of times God showed himself and was present with humanity on tall mountains in the Old Testament. Uh, God came and gave his law to Moses on, um, on Mount Sinai. <clears throat> and then this cloud appears also. That's also a symbol of God's presence. Jesus' clothes turn, turn this dazzling white. And for a brief moment, the veil is lifted. The disciples get this inside of view to who he is. That he is God amongst us. And it's to give confidence to them. It's only a few disciples that were there to see it. But there's these other characters that appear as well. Moses and Elijah. And they represent the law and the prophets. These two big parts of the Old Testament. How God, he revealed himself in the past in those ways. And these men, they show up. But it's also interesting because these two men, they, you, you might be aware, they departed this world in a really weird ways. Uh, Moses and Elijah. See, Elijah, he was taken up to heaven. He didn't even die, the God, uh, God's word tells us. He was taken straight to heaven. And we're told in Deuteronomy that God himself buried Moses in the desert, somewhere in, around Moab, but no one actually knows where Moses was buried. <laughs> so these men, they both departed this earth in kind of interesting ways. And Jesus, he's just been talking about how he's going to depart. He's going to die and rise again. So here, here we are with Jesus, these two big figures of the Old Testament, and suddenly this cloud envelops them all. And God the Father speaks into this whole scene. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And this is the same word. It might sound familiar to you. At the start of the gospel, God said this to Jesus when he was being baptized. So Jesus, he's gone on with his ministry and he started telling people, look, I'm going to suffer. 
I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah. And again, God the Father says, yes, this is my son. Listen to him. He's telling you the truth. And in an instant, the cloud lifts and no one else is left other than Jesus. He alone remains the sole bearer of God's revelation to us now. And if Jesus is God, of course we'd want to listen to him. That means that he'll be the supreme authority. He'll be the one that we go to when we're trying to figure out decisions to make in life. Of course, we still listen to other voices, right? We listen to our parents, our friends. We listen to those around us. But he's the only one who sits above it all. And he's the one who we go to as our supreme authority. So his word is true. And particularly when we're tempted to to place other authorities above him and maybe think that um, there are other ways around what he says. Now the disciples, they're understandably really confused by this whole situation. Peter, he kind of just fumbles his way and says, oh, let's put up a tent. Let's put up a tent for you guys. Um, I don't know, we might go camping. He, he, he just doesn't quite know what's going on. And I love that Mark, he says that... Uh, uh, where does it say it? Sorry. He did not know what to say since they were terrified. <laughs> it's just a very honest description of what's going on for Peter in this moment. See, the disciples, they're confused. But in the back of their minds, as they're walking down the mountain from this event, they have this idea about what it could all mean. They ask Jesus a question. They say, the scribes, they told us that Elijah would come first before the end of all things. So they're thinking, oh, maybe, like we just saw Elijah, does this mean that the end of all things is coming? Is this like, are we heading into eternity now? And they're actually referring to a verse in the Old Testament. You'll see it come up there, Malachi 4, verse 5. It says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So they say, okay, we just saw Elijah. Does this mean it's the end? Is glory here? Can we kind of skip the whole suffering thing that you were talking about? Do you have to die still? Maybe the the transfiguration was like the beginning of the end. These are probably the kinds of thoughts they're having. But the disciples, they're not quite on the money. See, the transfiguration with Elijah and Moses was a sign that Jesus' power powerful that he's glorious and it wasn't this beginning of the end there was lots that jesus still needed to do and to accomplish so the disciples they start questioning the significance of all of this and jesus tells them plainly look there's there's still suffering to come there's suffering before glory and we're actually going to slow down at this point that's what we'll be focusing on for our second point today that there is suffering before glory and if you were with us uh, last week, I'll get to that, uh, that illustration there. If you were with us last week, you might remember how the disciples were certain that Jesus wouldn't have to suffer. Peter was convinced that he'd, he just flat out rebuked Jesus, that he wouldn't have to suffer, and told him that he was wrong. So it seems like the disciples are still trying to wrap their heads around this stuff. And while they ask him about Elijah, I think they're really asking about do we really have to suffer? And do you really have to suffer? They think it might be an escape route for Jesus now that Elijah's come. But not so fast. Something has to happen. Jesus has to die before he uh, finishes his ministry and rise again. 
I wonder if you've ever wanted uh, the glory without the pain, to skip the suffering, right? And here's a couple of examples, I think, of that. That picture back there, sorry. Uh, that first picture there on the side. I remember when I was a, a teenager, I saw one of these things that apparently is supposed to uh, lose weight with like this vibrating belt. And it's just trying to like just miss all of the pain of exercise for all of the gain. And it's a bit of a ridiculous idea, right? Or even this second picture there of Rosie Ruiz. Uh, she wanted to be this glorious marathon winner. She apparently won the 1980 Boston Marathon. But it turns out she only ran half a mile of the race. Uh, she started right at the end and totally fooled a lot of people. But there were suspicions right away. She wasn't sweaty. Uh, her heart rate was just a lot, a lot higher than a normal marathon runner's would be. So look, right from the start, they kind of thought that she was having them on. See, for a lot of us, we want to skip the pain and go straight to the glory. We, we resonate with what the disciples might be thinking. So back to their question about Elijah then. They say, when Elijah comes, then that'll be the end, right? But Jesus tells them that it, Elijah, he wasn't that guy in the cloud that you just saw. That wasn't Elijah. The character of Elijah has already come in John the Baptist. Now, it's a lot going on here. You might be new to church, and that's okay. Elijah came in John the Baptist, and you can see Jesus teaches this very thing in Matthew 11, verse 14. He says, if you're willing to accept it, as he's talking about John the Baptist, he is the Elijah to come. <clears throat> see, he, John the Baptist, is the guy who's setting this pattern of suffer, suffering before glory. If you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, you can remember how he even died, that he literally had his head cut off and handed to Herod on a platter. John the Baptist set this pattern of suffering before glory. And Jesus also will suffer before he's uh, raised on high, glorious. And in verse 12, Jesus, he starts questioning the disciples. He says, why must the Son of Man suffer? And he's trying to convince them that his sufferings, they don't disqualify him from being the Son of Man. He still is God. And he teaches that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after that, he will rise three days later. And this is the second time that he's told them that he's going to die. And he basically, from this point in Mark, he's, it's like he's walking alone to Jerusalem to the moment that he will die for them. This pattern continues as Jesus will suffer before glory, and so will we. And I think that's what it's trying to get at uh, with one of the illustrations of it later in the passage, that we, as disciples of Jesus, will suffer before glory. It starts talking about the salt there. You can see a few different uh, mentions of the salt right at the end of the passage if you're following along. Verse 49 is a good place to go to. It says, For everyone will be salted with fire. And it's a bit of a weird verse. There's like a lot written about it. You could go into it, I'm sure. Uh, the verse just before, it's been speaking about hell, that people will be punished in hell. And, and that verse, it's, it's quite heavy, right? It's a somber verse to, to read. And as we approach this verse 49, we want to be humble in our approach and, and know that there's lots of growing to do. 
But in verse 49, the connection between salted and fire, it seems to be alluding to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, as animals were, were instructed to be salted before they went into the flames. It seems to be saying that those who believe in Jesus, their life will be a sacrifice before God. In fact, those who follow Jesus will be purified by fire. They'll be tested by suffering, but be preserved. They, they won't go to punishment. See, salt meant life in the ancient world. It meant you know, pre preservation of life. So though we right now are experiencing suffering and persecution for following Jesus, we'll survive, we'll be preserved into eternity. That's where I've landed on this verse. Of course, we have many other clearer verses which speak about the fact that we're to be spiritual sacrifices for God to live in honour of what he's done for us. Simply put, Jesus is saying that fire is on its way. For those not following Jesus, they'll be consumed by the fire of hell. And it is a heavy verse. It's a devastating reality. And if this is a concern for you, please have a chat with someone. Ask them how... Salvation works in Jesus and the offer, the free offer he gives to us so that we don't have to face that fate. But for those of us who follow Jesus, the fire of suffering and persecution, all of that, well, we'll completely experience it in the suffering in this world. We won't have punishment to come. And I think, think this fits the broader like, um, theme that we see in Mark in this chapter. Jesus is trying to teach his followers that they'll suffer and they'll hurt in following him. But it's not useless. It's not pointless that actually your life will be preserved through those flames. There is glory to come. And it's hard to think that following Jesus will mean that we'll endure suffering in his name. I mean, it's a hard concept to, to really get on board with. Not many of us really want to suffer, right? And verse 35, it teaches us that we are to become servants of all. We don't really want to make our lives harder. Yet God's word says it will be strengthened as we persevere in Christ. We can grow in dependence of God. We can be humbled as our bodies fail. It's hard to see when you're suffering. It's hard to see that there's glory to come. But what a passage to remind us that there is. Uh, those around us might say that, look, all kinds of suffering should always be avoided. It's pra uh, practically like a maxim of our, our culture at the moment. But Jesus speaks a better word. He says that if we do endure suffering for him, that we'll be greatly rewarded out of his grace, that enduring suffering is good. And for you today, it might feel like you're going through the flames right as we speak. Take heart that there's no punishment remaining after this life. In a little while, Jesus will be back. And hold on to hope, as Jesus tells us here. It's not as if God has forgotten us or abandoned us in our suffering. Even when, you know, we lose friends because of Jesus or we might endure slander because of Jesus, we might lose money or a job or social standing. Friends, this is the glory of being a disciple of Christ as we put others before ourselves 
as we serve those around us. So in our lives of trouble and of suffering, what kind of attitude should we have? Does it even matter what our attitude is like if we're going to endure all this suffering? Well, Mark 9, it beautifully illustrates that our attitude in this world of suffering, it must be one of humility. I was so struck by this as I read through this chapter. These characters showing us how good it is to be a humble servant of God. And then also some of the disciples who at times really come across as quite foolish and proud in their interactions with Jesus. And often that's the case in Mark. Often we learn something from the disciples, they're a good example for us. But even more often than that, it seems to be just the other unnamed people who interact with Jesus, who teach us something great about Jesus. And we see an attitude of humility in Jesus and also in the father of the boy. I wonder if you noticed. We see that this boy's father, he comes to Jesus and he says this, I do believe, help my unbelief. And it's this honest description of where he's at. He, he doesn't seek to lie to Jesus. Jesus compassionately helps the boy. He, he removes the spirit from his son. See, this father, he seems to, to recognize who Jesus is. He has just a, a small amount of faith at least. This father, there's no need to be pretend before Jesus. There's no need for fanfare, for lies. He presents his problem to God and he humbly asks that God would help him in his weak, his human, uh, doubt-filled state. And it's ironic. As we compare the father's interaction with Jesus compared to the disciples, the disciples kind of seem to be a bit more focused on themselves here. First off, in verse 29, Jesus says that this type of spirit only comes out with prayer. So if we connect the dots there, Jesus is basically saying, look, you guys didn't even pray. You went out, you didn't even pray, and you're expecting me to work. You didn't ask for help, you tried to go about it on your own steam. Maybe the disciples, they were starting to think of themselves as, as kind of notable people. They'd had lots of success in the past. And we all do the same, right? We neglect prayer all the time. We fail to speak to God in that powerful way. Because prayer, it, it slows us down, doesn't it? But prayer reminds us who's in control. It reminds us that we haven't graduated from one level of disciple to the next. The disciples are a great warning to us to not neglect prayer. They're also a warning to us to not be competitive with one another. You notice that in this passage as well, how embarrassing it is that Jesus knew what they were really talking about, that they were arguing about who was the greatest. And it's schoolyard antics, really. But we've all thought the same thoughts. We've all been there and thought that we were just a bit better than someone else. We, we tend to see ourselves in such a positive light. We can tell ourselves that we're far more capable, far more worthy than others. And life can easily just become about us. Jesus, he says, look, you guys should not have stopped this other man who was serving me, serving me in my name. See, this other man, he wasn't against the disciples. He wasn't dividing uh, them. He was on about the exact same thing, glorifying Jesus and going about that in Jesus' power as well. And it's ironic, like the disciples could not help the boy at all, but this other 
they had the audacity to go to this other guy and say, look, stop, stop serving Jesus, stop doing what you're doing. It's like the disciples, they're kind of exploiting their power as their followers of Jesus. They thought that they could speak for Jesus, but they didn't have the competence to. Only Jesus knows who is truly his. We can't say who's in or out. And it's such a warning to us to not be so bold as they were. Of course, we're to be discerning about the truth and be uh, hold to God's word tightly. We're to be discerning about what he has said to us. But to stop others from serving in Jesus, just because they're not in our group, not in our tribe, that's a whole different story. And it's a real challenge to us, I think. We see humility most, clo- most clearly displayed in this chapter uh, in Jesus. So he's just you know, been transfigured before them. He's shone in brilliant light. And yet he lowers himself and he shows compassion on this, this man and on his son. This man, this son, they didn't have to be good enough to come to Jesus. And he teaches them in a bunch of ways about what it means to be humble. He says, the first must be last and a servant of all. And he says in verse 37 as well, whoever welcomes one little child as this in my name welcomes me. And as it was being read read out, I just heard some of the cries of some of the children in our midst. And it was a great reminder to welcome the children in our midst, to welcome those who might be seen as weak, some of those who might be seen as lowly. We're to love all people. And if we receive those who are seen as lowly, we're actually receiving Jesus. And we're receiving the Father as well. Jesus, he's flipping our values on its head. See, we're to be servants of all. We're to be outstanding as servants. Not in our achievements or our lofty titles. We're to welcome those who might be seen as despised or forgotten or weak. He speaks really radically here, doesn't he? He says that it's a great thing to deny ourselves, to serve all. And he kind of implicitly is teaching, look, it's a real problem if we just continue to give ourselves what we want. What a foolish way to live. We'll end up comfortable, selfish and proud. And we've seen that the boy's father, he was humble in asking God to help him in his unbelief. And we're to be the same, to be humble before God in hating our sin, rejecting it in our lives. And he uses really severe language, you know, cut it out, gouge it out, the sin that is in our lives. And I resonate with this. Like We're all one step away from stupidity, aren't we? We're all strugglers. And I love this um, illustration that, a minister from England used about this kind of point, Dick Lucas, he said, even when I'm repenting, I often jot the name down so that we can keep in touch. And it's true, right? Even in the moment of repenting, we're often planning the next time that we might sin. And look, if you're not like that, collect your wings and go straight to heaven. (laughs) Because we're all in the same boat. And Jesus, he gives us the truth and he challenges us to hate sin with a passion. Yet we often find ourselves so led astray. And because of this, we shouldn't fool ourselves that we've made it. That we've finally put our socks up like high enough. (laughs) We're to be humble in the way we recognize our failings 
and ask God for his help through prayer. And what a relief this passage is to remember that we are simply servants of God. We don't have to be anyone. We don't have to be influential or achieve the world. We have Christ who's achieved more than any of us can ever do. We don't have to show up to church and pretend where we are at with God. We can be honest where we are. We can let people in and share our struggles, share our doubts mixed in with our faith. Let's not be afraid of sharing those doubts, just like the father of the boy did, and ask for Jesus' help in our state. Uh, let's bring uh, our cares and our concerns to, to God now. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our dear Father, we are so often proud and we often think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Uh, please humble us. Help us to have a right view of ourselves And to not be so focused on ourselves, but focused on Christ. Might we listen to him as your son, as the supreme authority in this world. Help us to go to him regularly. Help us to see him as our supreme authority. And Lord, we ask that we would follow him in the way that he suffered and was humbled. Lord, give us strength. Give us perseverance for those who are finding it hard at the moment, following Jesus. Convince us, remind us that there is glory to come, that there is a reward just around the corner. We thank you for the way that you give us uh, this reward of heaven with you out of your grace. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.